service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. All of my sins, all of my sins, been taken away, been taken away. Well, all of my sins, well, all of my sins, been taken away, been taken away. All of my sins, been taken away. Go to hell and do your time, Jesus' name. All of my sins, been taken away, taken away. The stories about Mel Gibson are insane. He grew up surrounded by religious extremism and endured regular beatings at Catholic school. He doled out equally punishing scenes as a film director, recreating bone-crushing torture and human sacrifice. His teenage habit of sneaking beers from the local pub became a decades-long battle with alcoholism that would shape the course of his extensive film career. His ability to fly off the handle at a moment's notice made him Hollywood's most in-demand actor for playing wild cards and anti-heroes. That is, until he was caught spitting slurs and playing the supervillain in real life. But despite this, Mel Gibson made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Francis and Arilla Horn singing All My Sins Been Taken Away in 1939. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Michael Mann's Miami Vice. And why would I play you that specific slice of Crockett and Tubbs reboot cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on July 28, 2006. And that was the day that Mel Gibson recited a script that would divide the world about him forever. On this episode, beating, bone-crushing torture, Crockett and Tubbs reboot Cheese, and Mel Gibson. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 7, Hollywoodland. Mel Gibson winced as he shoved the pistol into his mouth. 
His eyes scanned the trailer, searching for what he had no idea. A will to live, a reason to stick around this shithole. There was nothing, no hope, no options, no salvation. Just drool running onto his hand and his finger on the trigger. No one on the set of Lethal Weapon knew what Mel Gibson was doing. The scene was supposed to be the audience's introduction to Mel's character, Martin Riggs, the cop drowning in grief over the sudden loss of his wife. Like any director worth his salt, Richard Donner gave clear directions, stare down the barrel of the gun, then ram that sucker right into your temple. Mel did all that with mastery. He even flinched when the barrel kissed his forehead. But then he took it one step further. Now, he was choking on his revolver. Tears were running down his cheeks. This was not in the script. Richard Donner watched his actor on a video monitor outside the trailer and shuddered. That was a real gun, loaded with a real blank. It wouldn't tear a hole in Mel's head, but that didn't mean that a projectile launched into his skull wouldn't fuck him up for life. Mel Gibson was in grave danger. Or was he? No one on the set could tell if this was a real crisis or the most convincing improv they had ever witnessed. Intervening could either save a life or ruin an Oscar-worthy take. Mel squeezed the trigger a little harder, held his breath a little tighter, and the crew held their collective breath too. What were they supposed to do? Someone began to cry, and suddenly the tension broke. Mel spit the gun out. Jackpot, thought everyone on the set. That and thank Christ, Donner had seen enough. Cut, but Mel wasn't done. This scene would end when he said it was over, and not a moment sooner. He rubbed his forehead with frustration, using the hand that was still clutching the revolver. He picked up his character's sole consolation, a framed photo of his recently deceased wife. He pressed the glass to his cheek and sobbed. I'll see you later, much later, he said. He tossed the frame onto the floor with a clink. But Mel wouldn't see that photo again, because he wouldn't need to do that scene again. One take was enough. One extreme take. That's what Mel Gibson did, the extreme. He played wildcard characters because he was a wildcard. Characters like a sprinter turned World War I soldier in Gallipoli, a tyrannical ship captain in The Bounty. He suited up as the post-apocalyptic road warrior Mad Max in 1979, and in 1981, and again in 1985. Now he was playing Martin Riggs, a devil-may-care cop hunting down the man responsible for the death of his wife. It was kill or be killed. Bring on the bloodshed. Show him the shootouts and the electric shock torture. In one scene, Mel's character even handcuffs himself to a suicidal man and jumps off a rooftop, taking the other guy with him. Martin Riggs did not give a fuck, and neither did Mel Gibson. Not when it came to getting a scene done on his own terms. His reputation ranged from explosive action star to thrill-hungry lunatic, depending on who you asked. His films were polarizing, boundary-pushing, but they weren't boring. Starting with Mad Max, Mel plunged straight into the wasteland and straight into insanity. He went straight to the bank, too. Mel Gibson was the breakout blockbuster star of the 1980s. At home in Australia, Mad Max raked in over $5.3 million. That might not sound like much in 2022, but it was a remarkable performance for 1979. Put it this way, that's over 25 times the film's original budget of $200,000. The sequel did even better, 
It broke two different Australian records when it netted 802 grand across 58 theaters in just five days. Soon, it would be Lethal Weapon's turn to blow away the box office. Worldwide ticket sales were expected to be as explosive as Mel's stunts. But in one location, Lethal Weapon would blow up right in Mel Gibson's face. Police Constable Roger Brereton didn't know what he was looking for, or who he was looking for. The details from dispatch were limited. According to a barrage of 999 calls, a gunman was on the loose in Hungerford, this little market town in Berkshire, England. The body count was unconfirmed, but rising. There was only one thing the Hungerford police force knew for sure. There was a trail of carnage splattered across their quiet little hamlet. August 19th, 1987. Brereton scaled the sidewalks from the front seat of his cruiser. This was supposed to be his day off. Instead, it would be his last day on Earth. And the cruiser skidded under the Hungerford Common. That's when Brereton spotted him. A young man stalking around with a semi-automatic rifle in one hand and a Beretta 9mm pistol in the other. He reached for the radio to confirm the presence of an active shooter. A bullet tore through Brereton's chest before he could finish the call. Shards of glass exploded inside the cruiser, and the car swerved under the side of the road and shot straight into a telegraph pole. 27-year-old Michael Ryan approached the wreckage and found Brereton slumped over the steering wheel. Ryan planted another 20-plus bullets into the patrol car anyway, just in case. And then he marched down Southview in his flak jacket. He fired at a passing Volvo. He didn't know the passengers. He didn't need to. Ryan aimed his weapons on a whim. At a grandfather rushing his children inside, a taxi driver headed home to see his family in between fares, an elderly man tending his garden. Ryan killed without thought, and he killed for four hours straight. No one was safe. Not his own neighbors, not his own dogs, not his own mother. Even she got shot four times with his Beretta. Ryan fired into houses as he passed them. He aimed at drivers, pedestrians, whoever he was unlucky enough to pass on his way to the John O'Gon school. And the cops were closing in on him now. Ryan climbed to a second floor classroom and aimed at a police helicopter moving overhead. He fired through the closed windows. More shards of glass, more empty cartridges, more cops poured into the playground on foot. Ryan was surrounded. He tossed his semi-automatic out the window. A police negotiator called him from the lawn while an officer put Ryan in his crosshairs. It's funny, he said. I killed all those people, but I don't have the guts to blow my own brains out. No one was laughing. Seven minutes later, Michael Ryan found the guts. A gunshot rang out from the second floor classroom, and the body count of what would come to be known as the Hungerford Massacre climbed to 17. The events of August 19, 1987 remain one of the deadliest mass shootings in England's history. 17 people were ripped from their families in a matter of hours. 17 seats suddenly went unclaimed at family dinner tables. The tragedy dampened public morale for the indefinite future. No one with half a heart could stomach any more violence, especially not in the form of an overblown new action movie that made bullets fly just for fun. Lethal Weapon didn't open in Britain until late August of 1987, almost six months behind its massive opening in the United States. Fans lucky enough to catch sneak previews at 30 theaters across the country raved about their new favorite buddy cop movie. But Hungerford wasn't in the mood for any more shootouts. Four of England's five regional networks pulled the ads for Lethal Weapon on opening weekend. One theater even withdrew the film entirely. 
No one could prove that movies like Lethal Weapon were an inspiration for criminals like Michael Ryan, but it didn't matter. The trigger-happy ads were downright distasteful given the circumstances. Homicidal antiheroes like Martin Riggs had no home in Hungerford, and for that, Mel Gibson would have to atone. Young Mel Gibson prayed like clockwork, on his knees, eyes closed, hands folded, family at his side, three times a day. His father Hutton wouldn't have it any other way. Hutton said there were certain perks that came with such staunch displays of faith. He claimed that if you were Catholic, you quote, had the lifelong satisfaction of being right. Naturally, he passed that gift of righteousness onto his 11 children. Mel always listened to what his father had to say. He listened when his father told him that Catholic masses should have never been translated from Latin to English. He listened when his father said divorce was wrong, that abortion was detestable, and that the theory of evolution was just that, a theory. He listened to everything except that one rule about drinking and smoking being two of the worst things a person could do. That rule sounded kind of square, especially once Mel got his first sip of liquor at age 13. Mel and his pal Jeremy had their own routine. Jeremy would part the seas at the local pub, flash a smile that made him look well beyond his years to fool the bartender, score two pints, bring one outside for Mel to slurp down. Cheers, mate. Mel didn't know if he was going to hell for drinking, but he did know that beer took the edge off way better than prayer did. It didn't hurt his knees either, which meant a lot considering Mel's body was aching all the time. When Mel was 12 years old, Hutton uprooted the Gibson family from New York in favor of a life in Australia, where his sons wouldn't be drafted to fight in the Vietnam War. Instead, Mel had to fight his own battles at his new school, battles that left behind a different kind of scar. St. Leo's College wasn't just another private institution. It was an all-boys Catholic school run by a slap-happy group of priests called the Christian Brothers. Every day, Mel suited up for torment in a stiff blazer, gray flannel trousers, and straw boater hat. He braced himself for the taunts of the other boys who mocked his accent and called him a yank. God forbid Mel ever fight back or he'd get a backhand from one of the Christian brothers. Forget nuns and their rulers back in the States. At St. Leo's, naughty boys atoned for their sins through flesh-on-flesh -flesh corporal punishment. And there were so many ways a teenage boy could go astray. Smoking in the school bathroom? Antagonizing teachers? Starting a competition with the other boys at school over who could get the most punishments? That earned 27 hits right in a row. After every sin, atonement was the only option. Atonement was the only way through. Jim Caviezel clenched his teeth. His body cried out for support. It lurched over a pillar in front of him. His bowed position revealed his bare back matted with a thick coat of stage blood from all the stage lashings. If you didn't know any better, it looked like the lead actor in The Passion of the Christ was dying. Good. Mel Gibson needed to see fresh wounds glistening under the lights from where he sat in his director's chair. Phony gashes covered every inch of Jim's back. One eye was purple. 
It took the makeup team eight hours every morning to make his body look like it had taken a beating of biblical proportions. And that was only the beginning of the torture. After spending a third of his day in makeup, Jim trudged to the two and a half acre recreation of Jerusalem at Rome's Chinachita Studios. The set hurled Mel and his crew into the past and into an age of brutality. No one held back during today's scene. Jim's body crumpled onto the pillar over and over again. The dried blood coating his hands practically turned them black. The actors playing Roman guards counted every lashing in Latin. Jim relied on a mirror offset to anticipate every lashing. When he saw the whip come down in the reflection, he collapsed onto the pillar a moment later, imitating the agony of a scourging. A well-placed board between Jim and the Roman guards took the real beating, but Mel wanted to try something different this afternoon. He ordered the Roman guards to throw their whips overhand for a change. You know, like pitching a baseball. And those actors must not have been sports fans. Jim braced himself on the pillar for the next round. Jim crashed to his knees before he could scream. The wind escaped his lungs. He gasped for air, but nothing came. It felt like his spine had been sliced open. Fuck, that was definitely real. One guard missed the board completely. His whip carved a 14-inch gash into Jim's back. Jim trembled face first in the sand. The cut was so gruesome that it became the gold standard for Jim's makeup from that day forward. After all, Mel's holy crusade was to capture the closest possible representation of Jesus' suffering, even if it edged him dangerously close to an NC-17 rating. Mel spent over a month perfecting the crucifixion scenes alone. For five weeks, Jim endured old-fashioned forms of torture. He dislocated a shoulder. He shivered outside in nothing but a loincloth while tethered to the cross as the crew filmed his misery in scarves and mittens. He caught hypothermia and a lung infection. And then, he caught a bolt of God's wrath. Jim knew the lightning would strike him about four seconds before it made contact. His recreation of the Sermon on the Mount was about to be cut short. The higher the hill, the closer to God, and the closer to danger, too. The bolt snapped down from the sky. It passed through Jim's body, millions of volts of electricity shaking through his veins. Pink and red static flashed before his eyes. His body gave off a heavenly glow as fire shot from his ears. The sight of lighting actually striking Caviezel gave a whole new meaning to holy hell. Like many devout Catholics, Jim Caviezel offered up every ounce of his suffering to God. He had no other choice. Mel Gibson realized that even a sacred story like Jesus' death could push boundaries. The Passion of the Christ earned its standing as the most violent film Roger Ebert had ever seen, with every bone crunch, every ripped chunk of flesh, and every mouthful of blood. Mel demanded accurate and extreme scenes for his masterpiece. After all, Mel Gibson had a reputation to uphold. He wasn't just a successful actor anymore. By the early 2000s, he was a hybrid of an actor, director, and Academy Award winner. Lethal Weapon was his liftoff to the upper echelon of Hollywood. Lethal Weapon 2 was so gripping it practically overtook the original in popularity. He made his directorial debut with The Man Without a Face in 1993. He showed his sensitive side in a film adaptation of Hamlet, which was almost as impressive since most folks associated Mel with murder and mayhem, not the sweet verses of Shakespeare. Between 1989 and 2002, Mel Gibson starred in 10 movies that each grossed at least $100 million at the box office. 
And by the 2000s, he had nothing left to prove to the public. Instead, he had something to prove to himself and to his maker. While the accolades poured in during the 1980s and 1990s, Mel Gibson kept pouring himself drinks. He graduated from sneaking beers from the pub as a teen to chugging a six-pack of beer for breakfast before showing up to set. That particular morning habit led him behind the wheel of a rented Pontiac and into the rear of another car in Toronto in 1984. His bouts with the bottle worsened while filming Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And at his lowest points, Mel remained yellow-eyed and weak-kneed, blacking out and keeling over on regular intervals. But that was the old Mel. The new and improved Mel transcended that behavior. He claimed the Holy Spirit moved through him on the set of The Passion of the Christ. Mel existed in a space of grace and healing, which he ironically created through beatings, whippings, and explosive acts of God. The Passion of the Christ was Mel's way of making peace with his past, although Jim was seemingly the one doing all the atoning. Mel had faith that his Lord and Savior would calm the storm that had been raging inside him for decades. But the fix was temporary at best. Another tempest brewed on the horizon for Mel Gibson. A tempest that not even God could spare him from. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome back to Musicland Stories. Join us for a new aquatic season, exploring the sonic adventures of sea creatures from ghost crabs to octopodies, earworms to mazes of coral reef. Listen to the newest season of Musicland Stories, airing weekly every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, aquatic adventurers. Captain out. Mel Gibson's throat burned like hell. He kept his hands at 10 and 2 on the wheel of his Lexus, but all he wanted to do was claw at his neck. What had he done? The sting of booze lingered like a thousand lashes down his throat. Maybe it was all in his head. Some good old-fashioned Catholic guilt after boozing it up at Moonshadows, a Malibu restaurant known for its killer cocktail menu. Imaginary or not, the burn felt real to Mel. He focused so intensely on his throat that he didn't notice his foot leaning into the gas pedal. The flashing blue lights in the rearview mirror tipped Mel off. Shit. He was going 87 in a 45 on the Pacific Coast Highway. The cop tailing him didn't realize Mel was also driving under the influence. Yet. July 28, 2006. Mel kept his cool. He provided his license and registration. He stepped out of the vehicle at the officer's request. He waited patiently for the moment the cop would give him a script to read to see just how blotto he really was. And that moment never came. Instead, the officer made him an offer. If Mel cooperated, he could sit in the back seat without any handcuffs. Mel was going down to the station. No script, no second chances. No fucking fair, Mel thought. That's when Mel Gibson turned on the extreme. He went back to his Lexus. I'm not gonna get into your car, he said. And the cop cornered Mel against the driver's door and slapped the cuffs on him. The drama could have ended with Mel's DUI and his attempt to escape arrest, but it didn't. Mel's mood continued to sour in the backseat of the cruiser on the way to the police station. He began to rant and rave about Jews. He even asked the cop if he was Jewish. I'm serious. This is all in the police report. Those kinds of remarks aren't the usual script for entitled celebrity arrests. 
Mel made sure to add that he owned Malibu before making one final remark to a female officer at the Lost Hills police station. What are you looking at, sugar tits? A breathalyzer test revealed that Mel's blood alcohol concentration was 0.12, well over the legal limit of 0.08. It's impossible to know how much or for how long Mel had been drinking that night, but the math shakes out to five or six drinks in one hour for someone his size to get that wasted. Mel started the damage control before the news could break. He ran his fingers through his hair at the police station's water fountain and splashed water on his face to freshen up before the mugshot keep up appearances, you know. He was released a few hours later. The $5,000 bail felt like a small fine for a multimillionaire movie star. But in Hollywood, Mel Gibson still had a mighty price to pay. Mel Gibson was pulled over early Friday morning for speeding and he drunk driving. Became it could have been a standard celebrity driving. the arresting deputy's notes. But I say the handle actor the pre-mugshot beauty session was useless. Mel Gibson was beyond keeping up appearances. This was no run-of-the-mill DUI. Those were a dime a dozen. This celebrity arrest had everything. Unspeakable controversy, explosions of wrath, a clear line between right and wrong. Mel's meltdown was something everyone could agree on, and that shit was messed up. Mel hovered between extreme and egregious for decades. One anti-Semitic tirade finally vaulted him over to the sinister side. His remarks resurrected religious controversies about the Gibson family's toxic strain of Catholicism. Mel's father, Hutton, ran his mouth on the radio back in 2004, just a week before The Passion of the Christ hit theaters. Hutton confidently stated that the Holocaust was mostly fictional. It paired well with his previous statements that Jews have tried to destroy the Catholic Church and Jews have infiltrated almost every religion in the world. Those are both direct quotes. Sound familiar? Hutton Gibson's remarks rocked the airwaves. Many people began to interpret the Passion of the Christ as a stereotypical portrayal of the Jewish people that blamed them for the death of Jesus. But those were just theories. Mel wasn't responsible for his father's bigotry. Besides, art was all about interpretation, right? No one knew for sure how Mel really felt about Judaism. Until now. Now, Mel made his feelings very clear. The remarks in the police report crucified his career. He would be offered no period of atonement this time. Within three days of Mel's arrest, ABC canceled a miniseries that Mel was developing about, I shit you not, the Holocaust. Amy Pascal, the head of Sony, immediately called for an industry-wide boycott of Mel. Ari Emanuel, a founding partner of Endeavor, then one of the fastest-growing talent agencies in Hollywood, echoed Amy's demands. To quote his character Martin Riggs in Lethal Weapon, Mel was fucked and no one wanted to work with him. Fortunately, Mel could still work for himself. In 2006, he already had one film in the can. He directed, co-wrote, and co-produced an adventure film called Apocalypto that hurled viewers back to the final days of the Mayan Empire. Apocalypto literally made heads roll. Actors launched severed heads down a set of temple stairs, pulled the beating hearts for human sacrifices. Never mind the historical inaccuracies. Mel Gibson needed to remind people what he was capable of, that he could shock them into forgetting his tepid apology from earlier that year. Two apologies, actually, since Mel's first statement was directed at the arresting officer and somehow neglected to apologize to the religion he slandered at length. Mel's words were useless. Anyone could claim they were sorry, 
Just like anyone could claim an entire religion was the source of the world's problems. Fine, let him be that way. Mel could withstand all the punishment in the world. That's what his life was built around, for Christ's sake. But could he truly say he was sorry? Could he really feel actual remorse? Was salvation still an option? The applause thundering through the Venice Film Festival didn't let up for 10 minutes straight. That's one minute for every year that Mel Gibson had been banished from Hollywood. Most of Hollywood, anyway. But tonight, on September 4th, 2016, he was among the world's most respected inner circles of cinema, collecting praise for his new World War II film, Hacksaw Ridge. It was a comeback no one saw coming. A comeback no one was sure Mel Gibson had even earned. It just was. And by the time Hacksaw Ridge premiered, Mel's DUI arrest was 10 years in the rear view. That was old news. Especially since he had more recent scandal to smooth over these days. Cops weren't the only people Mel Gibson mouthed off to. He could be just as nasty with an ex-girlfriend. The media even had the tapes to prove it. Six years before the standing O at the Venice Film Festival, in 2010, a handful of taped phone conversations between Mel and his ex leaked to the press. Mel's ugly words were full of hardcore racial epithets and rampant misogyny. At one tape, his ex said she feared for her young daughter's life when Mel was around. Mel later remarked that he'd put her daughter in a quote-unquote fucking rose garden. Toss in a couple of C words and you get the idea of the rest. The tapes fanned the flames of Oksana's domestic abuse case against Mel. If you didn't know that she had accused Mel of punching her and threatening her with a gun, well, now you did. And you were damn concerned, too, after hearing the kind of damage he could inflict over a phone call. Mel wound up pleading no contest to a misdemeanor battery charge. The backlash was once again immediate. Leonardo DiCaprio backed out of Mel's future movie Berserker, which subsequently fell off the face of the earth. And then Mel lost his cameo in The Hangover 2 at the behest of the movie's cast and crew. Mel eventually landed a lead role in The Beaver, Jodie Foster's quirky drama about mental health. Mel played Walter Black, a suicidal CEO on the brink of bankruptcy who copes with his depression by speaking exclusively through a beaver puppet. The successful and loving family man he used to be has gone missing, goes the voiceover narration of the trailer for the movie while bleak clips of Mel's character roll by. The public saw Mel in the movie as a lost cause. Jodie Foster sunk $21 million into the project. It barely brought home $7 million at the box office. After his 10-film run of $100 million movies, The Beaver was a new low for Mel Gibson. So he shocked everyone again and bounded to a new high. Mel hopped into the director's chair once more to make Hacksaw Ridge. War was the great American unifier. It could unite a divided country against its sworn enemy. It could even unite an industry that rode off a bigot almost 10 years ago. The Motion Picture Academy embraced Mel with six Oscar nominations and two wins. Hacksaw Ridge's $180 million performance at the box office suggested that 10 years was long enough of an atonement for most Americans. And even if it wasn't, Mel wasn't apologizing anymore. Not when given the chance on late night television, 
when fellow Catholic Stephen Colbert tried to squeeze one true sorry out of him. Not in countless interviews where Mel insisted that he had apologized, quote, more than anyone else. He even said it was a shame that celebrities like himself weren't allowed to have a nervous breakdown, directly referencing his 2006 DUI. Fragments of Hollywood maintain to this day that there's no penance extreme enough for what Mel Gibson has said and done, but Mel's misfortunes faded in the rear view around 2017 because a new sinner was about to be revealed. Two words, one hashtag, and a million voices dragged down another film industry mogul, Harvey Weinstein. Hollywood's newest supervillain deemed beyond redemption. Once the microscope shifted away from Mel and onto Weinstein, Mel stepped back into the spotlight. Between 2017 and 2022, he nabbed at least a dozen movie roles, returning him to the rapid filming pace of his pre-DUI days. As we speak, both the sequel to The Passion of the Christ and Lethal Weapon 5 are in the works. Harvey Weinstein, meanwhile, is out of business. Mel's back in business like never before. It's a superstar switcheroo so controversial and so extreme that, you know, it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.